Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, you are off on a big adventure, and I am freshly back from one. And they could not be more different, could they? <laughs> they really couldn't. Now, I'm going to suggest, since I see the suitcases piled up outside of the Have You Heard podcast studio, which is conveniently located in Jack Schneider's kitchen, I'm going <laughs> to suggest that we go ahead and make this episode all about me. Yeah, sure. I will take the snorkel mask off and drop the Australian accent for this episode if you really insist. Where are we headed, Jennifer? We are headed to Michigan. Now, as many people know, I am a little bit obsessed with Michigan and one of its most famous daughters, Betsy DeVos. I recently headed there for a week. I drove 1,300 miles all over the state. I was particularly interested in an aspect of their free market education experiment that hasn't gotten that much coverage. Um, If you follow Michigan, you know that they have a lot of charters and they have more uh, for-profit charters than any other state. But that is not the end of their free market experiment. For the past quarter century, they've also had an ambitious inter-district choice policy. And Jack, we talked a couple of weeks ago about whether it was time to end the connection between schools and neighborhoods. And well, Michigan has probably gone further down that road than any other state. For people who don't know what inter-district choice is, uh, this would be being able to choice out of your district and into another district. Uh, so think of it as the opposite of an intra-squad game where you play your own team. An inter-squad game is just a regular game where you play other teams. So this is students and families in one district uh, enrolling in schools in another district. Now, this may sound totally innocuous on its surface. And certainly there are some things to like about it in terms of opening up choices for low-income and historically marginalized groups who oftentimes have been trapped in schools and districts that have been systematically underfunded and deeply segregated. But there are also some things to be really concerned about here. Uh, You know, I think first and foremost is the fact that some families are going to have better access to resources like transportation as well as information and are going to be the first to opt out of their existing districts which is going to leave their previous districts poorer and probably more segregated as a result, potentially trapping the most vulnerable students in those districts. And then rather than investing in those uh, in a way that perhaps would have met the needs of all students, uh, the state can then really wipe its hands of the problem and allow the district to implode in a way that really just hurts, uh, again, the most vulnerable students. Well, Jack, I feel almost as if you were right there with me driving those 1,300 miles all over Michigan's appalling roads. Listen, Jennifer, I am uh, a big fan of the Mitten and the Wolverines, and now I've named all the things I know about Michigan, so I should stop. So let's start with the sunny, upbeat version of Michigan's inter-district school choice policy, or as it's referred to here, schools of choice. This is a little clip from the Mackinac Policy Center. You may be familiar with them. It looks like Mackinac, but it's pronounced Mackinac. I learned that lesson the hard way. 
Schools of Choice is a program where you can send your child to a district outside of the one in which you live. Um, and school districts have to choose to opt in. So initially, very few districts were opting in because they were concerned about students from other districts. This was something new. They didn't were not supportive of choice. But now, more than 80% of Michigan districts are accepting students into their boundaries, which is huge. Uh, what we did is we looked at, okay, where are students going? Where do students live? And where are they going to school? And we looked at average test scores, average graduation rates, average dropout rates. And incredibly, on average, these 100,000 students that are using schools of choice are choosing districts with higher test scores, higher graduation rates, and lower dropout rates. So on average, Michigan parents are making academically better choices. In other words, Michigan's schools of choice policy is a win-win. But what about the districts that those 100,000 students left behind? From their vantage point, inter-district choice looks a little less sunny. It just happened that my visit to Michigan coincided with a period of reckoning for one of these districts, Benton Harbor, a small majority African-American city on the shores of Lake Michigan. This was the scene when Michigan's new governor, Democrat Gretchen Whitmer, met with local residents about a plan to shutter the city's only high school. I just want to say that, like, I, I just want to say that the music video is made, you know, to support our community, and I know that we're going through tough times just like every other school is, but governor, you can't shut us down, because, like, how you going to have a community without a high school? That's it don't make sense. Like, we going through the same thing other schools going through, if not worse, as you said yourself, so how you trying to pinpoint us and shut us down? Like, it doesn't make sense. I understand that we in debt and all that, but at the end of the day, we only do what we can. To understand what interdistrict choice has to do with the troubles of a district like Benton Harbor, we need a crash course on the way that Michigan funds its schools. Fortunately, I happen to have an expert standing by. David Arson is a professor of education policy at Michigan State, and as he explains, when Michigan rolled out schools of choice back in the 90s, it also switched to what's often called a backpack model of school funding. In Michigan, uh, all the money uh, moves with the students, so uh, so it doesn't uh, take account of the impact on the uh, districts and the students who are not active choosers. Uh, as a result, uh, there's a sharp drop-off when a child leaves, all the state and local funding move with that student. Um, the revenue moves immediately, and that drops faster than the costs, and so that means, for the students left behind, that means that the, uh, the district's losing students to uh, schools of choice and other uh, charter schools um, uh, have to either cut back their services for those students left behind or draw down their fund balances. Usually they do both. That funding change was part of a whole series of policies aimed at restructuring education in Michigan along free market lines, and the state imposed that new framework on top of a system where students were deeply segregated by race and income, what Arson refers to as the original sin. If you put on top of that uh, choice and finance policies uh, that uh, you know before you play the game, uh, the direction of the student flows, they'll move away from uh, those uh, difficult circumstances. That's happened in uh, Benton Harbor. They've lost, uh, they've lost enrollment terrifically. Their, prim- their, their financial problems are, are fundamentally due to the loss of enrollment. That's why they're in trouble. That's like all the other Michigan districts. 
where there have been emergency managers and uh, consent decrees with the state. In every case, uh, there, there are districts that were predominantly African-American and poor children, and they, they suffered uh, terrific losses uh, of enrollment and revenue uh, with the, to both inter-district choice and charter schools. It's not just cities like Benton Harbor that are losing students. Because inter-district choice is a competition between school districts, there's always got to be a loser. Jason Davidson is a school board member in Clintondale, a small suburb in central Macomb County. The entire district has about 1,800 students. Uh, typically, uh, way back when, when it first started, we'd get a lot of students in from Detroit. Uh, but that has shifted over the years that we get students in from East Point, Roseville, and Mount Clemens, and then our students migrate out to school districts like Fraser, Lance Cruz, and Chippewa. We have a lot of students that move into our district by school of choice, but then we also have probably more that move out of our district by school of choice. Clintondale's high school has won awards and even been featured on PBS, but it's hard for the district to compete with larger, more affluent districts. So we have districts around our, ours that have a lot more money. Uh, so people perceive that as uh, that must be a better school district. For theater teacher Quinn Strassel, the winners versus losers aspect of schools of choice is personal. He teaches at Ann Arbor Community High School, but he grew up and attended school in the next town over. And it was the theater program at his former high school that set him on his path. Ipsy is a working class community, but we took a lot of pride in doing what we felt were the best shows in Michigan. We had an incredible choir, uh, world champion choir before I was ever a part of it, and an amazing theater director. And we did these big musicals that we just, and I, you know, I can say as a, as a neighbor to Ann Arbor, we thought we do better shows than Ann Arbor, you know, when I was in high school. Ann Arbor has come out on top in the Schools of Choice competition. It's considered a desirable district, and lots of students from neighboring communities now go to school there. But Ann Arbor's success has come at the expense of districts like the one next door. I'm really proud to have grown up in Ypsilanti and to have attended school there. But um, school choice is sort of advertised as this thing that gives empowers communities. Um, but what has happened is uh, the entire school system in Ypsilanti has fallen apart. Uh, there were two school districts that were forced to consolidate um, because uh, as Ann Arbor engaged in school choice, um, we took a lot of the best students away from Ypsilanti. So my paycheck is bolstered at the demise of my hometown. Of course, you can't have a free market approach to education without advertising, or as we like to call it on this program, advertising, and it's everywhere in Michigan these days. Districts like Ann Arbor brand their schools with STEM and art themes and market them to parents in neighboring communities. Rural districts do it too. I talked to a rural superintendent in the northwest part of the state who says he spends about $40,000 a year to advertise his district's academic success, and it works. Students in nearby towns are leaving their schools to attend schools in his district. And districts in Detroit's inner ring suburbs, like River Rouge, pitch their schools to students in city neighborhoods. Gavin Buckley teaches in the Brightmore neighborhood on Detroit's west side. A lot of parents in the district just have, have um, over the years, have kind of like a jaded view of the Detroit public schools. And then um, the charters in, in the neighborhood often don't accept certain students, especially students with IEPs or, or behavioral problems in the past, um, kind of the difficult kids. Um, 
And so there are these billboards you know, on the west side that say River Rouge, which is a suburb downriver from us. River Rouge School District will take everybody. Like we, you know, and and people go all the time. The River Rouge buses come through the neighborhood every day. More, you see more River Rouge buses than you do, you know, Detroit public buses. One of the ironies of interdistrict choice in Michigan is that some of the same communities that fought tooth and nail against busing back in the 70s have opened their schools to students from Detroit and other majority black cities. That's basically what's happened in River Rouge. It's a, a, a mostly white um, working class suburb uh, south of Detroit, southwest of Detroit, and it's um, its school district just like... Uh, for whatever reason that people were leaving the public school district, the school district had to save itself essentially by opening up the school of choice. Um, and now it's, I think, majority, almost majority or, or approaching a majority of, of Detroit students in the River Rouge district. So people that live in River Rouge aren't sending their children to the River Rouge public school district. So it's, it's weird. It's like, it's still a segregated district in a lot of ways, but it's outside of the city. It's, it's like a satellite public school district for Detroit students. So what changed in Michigan that communities that fought integration are now putting out the welcome mat for students from Detroit and Benton Harbor and Saginaw? David Arson says the answer comes down to money. Over the past 25 years, funding for Michigan's public schools has fallen more sharply than in any other state. The main incentive for that uh, is that uh, because of the decline in overall funding for Michigan schools, uh, the suburban districts are able to compensate for that shortfall in state funding by admitting non-resident students. Uh, that's the incentive to fill the seats uh, and bring in the money and balance their budgets and continue to be able to provide the services that they that the local residents have uh, expected. Uh, so that's the way they sell it to their communities. Uh, yes, we'll have more diverse schools, but we're able to keep AP calculus and reduce the class size. They also understand, everybody understands, that by doing that, they're aggravating the problems, the financial problems and the academic problems of the lower SES districts, usually predominantly minority districts from which they are drawing the students. Okay, so at this point, you've got a pretty good handle on how interdistrict school choice is playing out in Michigan. You understand the funding angle, how marketing plays into it, and which communities are likely to be choice winners and which ones are likely to see crushing enrollment declines. Well, now we're going to hit the road and take a closer look, or rather a listen, to one of these communities. We're headed to Saginaw, which is about an hour and a half northwest of Detroit and just up the road from Flint. Our destination is a a town hall meeting on school finance put on by a community organizing group called the Ezekiel Project. Gary Dawkins is one of its co-chairs, and I asked him to give us a little historical context for why Saginaw and its schools are struggling today. Unfortunately, we got caught up in the automotive boom. Back in the early 50s and 70s, there were at least five automotive plants here, but and in, going into the late, early 20th century, a lot of them closed, a lot of the jobs left, and um, people were used to just graduating out of high school and going straight into the plant. When they first started the migration from the South, a lot of the people didn't even have a high school education, but they were able to make 
25 $30 an hour eventually without education. But after the 70s, 80s, and 90s, all that changed. Like a lot of Michigan cities where industry has collapsed, Saginaw is shrinking, and so is the population of students in its schools. But that enrollment drop is also due to kids leaving to go to schools in other districts. Kathy Stewart is what they call an intermediate school district superintendent here in Saginaw County, which has 12 school districts as well as a handful of charter schools. Because she oversees the whole county, Stewart has a unique perspective on which districts are choice winners and which ones are losers. What is a true dynamic in our county is Saginaw City Public Schools continues the outflow of schools of choice students, some to charters, some to local school districts. One of our neighboring school districts is 50% schools of choice students from Saginaw City Public Schools. Not only are we seeing declining enrollment because of lower birth rates in Saginaw County, we also have that school's a choice impact of losing students to some of our neighboring districts. And that can really decimate a budget quickly. Remember way back at the start of this episode when we heard that chirpy, upbeat account of how Michigan students are benefiting from schools of choice? Well, there was a key detail that was left unmentioned. Because there's no transportation provided and attending school in another district often requires some significant travel, schools of choice are only an option for kids who have a way to get there. The state promotes it and markets it as schools of choice for all families, all children, all parents. One of the dynamics of schools of choice, though, is districts do not offer transportation into their district. So it is those families that have the transportation that wish to access another school district that have the means to get their children there every day. Since students who leave take all of their state and local funding with them, that leaves Saginaw schools and their teachers to try to make up the shortfall. 15-year-old Layla Hernandez goes to the Saginaw Arts and Science Academy. My school lacks like the updated technology and um, you know resources and like new books that we have every year, which is why our teachers like go back to fundraising to like pay for them for us because they care and they generally want us to have a good experience at school and they know that our district isn't able to always give it to us. So they're trying to like you know be what a teacher's supposed to do and make you happy at school. And so they like implement like programs to like raise our spirits, to, like have school spirit, to like know that just because we have all these things that we lack, there are ways that we can work around it. And it's all become like one big thing that we all have in common. It's like something that connects us. We all, oh, you know, our bathroom's broke. Oh, we don't have a book. Oh, I'm going to have to do all this homework because sometimes the computers don't work. And so I'm like loaded with homework and I'm up at like 5 a.m. We all like come together to try and like face this with like, it's kind of like putting a bandaid on it, putting a bandaid on something. Students like Layla and her friend Brianna Pruitt are very aware of why their peers are choosing to leave Saginaw's schools, but also why they've opted to stay. Um, most kids that do switch schools are going to um, more educationally resourced schools um, that will help them get closer to their goals. So um, they, they, I could have went to a base city school, but instead I decided to go to a more of a Saginaw-based school because of my um, the knowledge I know of Saginaw and the people I know and how to react to the people I know here and how to get along with them. 
Now, maybe you're thinking at this point, well, why can't Saginaw just do what, say, River Rouge does and put up big billboards advertising its schools or give its schools themes and market them to neighboring districts? I put that question to Saginaw Superintendent Ramont Douglas. Um, We haven't had to market. We don't understand how to market ourselves. We have some great things going on, but we don't understand marketing strategy. Um, And so that's just another aspect that that has imposed pressure on school districts because now what has happened is they've created a free market system in public education, right? And so there's so much competition and choice that is free market. And, And we don't necessarily understand how to deal in a free market. We're a public school system. Um, And so that has become a challenge for us. The challenge for Saginaw goes beyond just the obvious, like where do you find money for marketing when you're cutting programs? Michigan's education marketplace relies on test scores as its currency. And if you're a regular listener to this show, you know that a certain co-host regularly reminds us that test scores tell us more about demography than they do about school quality. So in order to sell its success, Saginaw also has to overcome perceptions about the city and its schools. Generally speaking, um, parents make choices about schools based on class. Um, And so when you add those elements to it, um, parents are left trying to choose not their local school district, but what they're perceived to be a better education, um, which is not always the case. Um, And so when you ignore factors that impact achievement um, in certain school districts, Uh, and you don't want to account for those, uh, and then you highlight achievement uh, as being a measure of how a school district is doing, and you use that to base choice policies on or highlight choice policies to parents, then it's a recipe for disaster, and you see what's happening in Michigan. So school districts like ours um, that have declined enrollment for the last uh, 15 years, we're a 5,500-student district, Um, In the year 2000, I believe we were a 12,000 student district. Um, And so you see the rapid decline that has taken place. And it's not simply because um, there's a better choice or better education. It's because what has been highlighted uh, in the media um, by a certain agenda that has been pushed. The sales pitch for interdistrict choice is that it gives students the ability to attend better schools than if they had to stay in their own districts. But proponents gloss right over what economists refer to as the negative externalities. When a student leaves Saginaw for another district, the students left behind pay a price, and they're not the only ones. Naisha Clark-Young thinks that Saginaw as a whole has been harmed by school choice. There's only a certain amount of people that can even attend a school of choice school, whether it's in a different township or if it's a charter school. And that depends on transportation, that depends on finances, and just um, all-around situations at home. I'm also concerned because when these students leave the district, the district, that school in that neighborhood loses money. Well, when you think about the school in that neighborhood losing money, think of everything else that is um, surrounded by that. So it's almost like an effect and affect situation when, you, when you're dealing with um, school of choice and, and taking kids out of that district. 
Just a few miles down the road is a town called Buena Vista. It's a lot like Saginaw, majority African-American, majority low income, but there's one big difference. Buena Vista no longer has public schools. A few years ago, the state took over the district and dissolved it. For now, Saginaw still has a school district, but Naisha worries that the city's schools are on a downward trajectory that's hurting the whole community. It's almost like um, a dead-end cycle. You have, um, you have a school of choice, and then you have public school. Well, the public schools are losing students, and they're losing, mostly they're, they're losing their best students a lot of time because um, of, uh, you know, personal ambitions, and you do want your child to do best. You know, you hear all these things, well, if I send my kid to this school in a better neighborhood, then they'll get a better education. Well, when we lose those students, we are losing not only jobs, some people end up moving. Um, when they go off to different schools, um, they don't come back to our community. Uh, if there's no school, if there aren't good schools in your neighborhood, say for instance, a business may want to come in. Well, the first thing they're looking at is that school district because they're thinking, okay, um, we're going to have employees here. Do we want our employees to go to this school? There is a long list of cities in Michigan facing the same problem. Benton Harbor, Muskegon, Pontiac, I could just keep going. School choice has decimated student enrollment, pushing urban school districts to the brink. But the poison pill at the heart of the schools of choice concept affects rural and suburban districts too. It sets up a competition in which the price for losing is paid by entire communities. Naisha Clark-Young summed it up better than anyone else I talked to. The school is a part of our community. And if the school fails, it, it, it will trickle down because what affects the one will affect the whole. Thanks to all of my friends in Michigan, old and new, who helped out with this episode, and to the Network for Public Education for its financial support. And Jack and I will be right back to wrap things up. In the meantime, I'm leaving you with a little message from some students at Benton Harbor High. The demons are knocking, our city is burning, and we have no options. They do not care about our city, they do not show us no love, they just put us in their pockets. To the world, we do the most of them, to the world, we is the ghost of them. But I'ma make sure to hear my words, yeah, I'ma make sure to hear my thirst. Cause we gon' blow up and fly like a bird, yeah, I'ma blow up and fly like a bird. You gonna take me up out of my city, move me, try me. Two, six, nine, I got the animals behind me. Cause honestly, you should be part of the movement, we make moves, we say goals, we gon' go far. Just watch how it goes, cause I'ma watch you on the sideline while we shine. You had the light, now the lights on mine. It's too bad, cause we in control now. Education is the goal now. Cause we're gonna be valedictorians. Cause we're victorious. Yeah, we're gonna be valedictorians. So Jack, you opened this episode with, I thought, like a pretty brisk summation of all the things that can go wrong with interdistrict choice. Listening to what I heard in my reporting in Michigan, did I confirm your worst suspicions? Oh, that and more so. When you came back from Michigan, you told me that it was going to make me really sad, and you were right about that. Um, and you know, I, I think one of the points that I just want to echo uh, that I mentioned at the top of the show is, you know, there are some sort of surface level reasons to be interested in something like interdistrict choice, and in fact, it could be a very helpful kind of policy if it was controlled in a way that helped us achieve some of our core aims, like school integration. It could be a very powerful tool for that. But unchecked, what we see is uh, a real race to the bottom, 
in some districts. And we even see districts that are not failing in terms of uh, being able to keep their existing students, right? So districts that are actually expanding in enrollments, we see some negative consequences for them as well as they are engaging in contortions to try to attract students in a way that doesn't necessarily align with what is best for young people. Well, Jack, recording a high-quality pod wasn't the only reason that I headed to Michigan. I was also working on a story, I'm trying to answer this question, basically how far down the road towards undermining its own schools can a state go before serious backlash is triggered? And after seven days and all those miles, I really feel like I got my answer and I'm going to reveal it on the other side of the paywall. Oh my god, I I wasn't even ready for that. I was wondering, you know, is it like a week? Are we talking a year here? And uh, at, I will probably need to subscribe to the Patreon so that I can hear your answer to this. So as our regular listeners know, we rely on your support to keep the podcast going and also to occasionally send one of us, almost always me, out into the world (laughs) to do a little firsthand reporting. If you go to patreon.com and search for Have You Heard, you'll find us and you'll find the ways that you can support us for just a couple of bucks a month. You can get some pretty cool extras like a reading list and access to a backstage area we like to call in the weeds. There are, of course, lots of ways you can support the show without opening your pocketbook. Um, you know, I think the best of them is to go on and leave us a review, preferably a favorable one, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you can tweet at us. The Twitter handle is at Have You Heard Pod. You can share episodes with friends, colleagues, and family members. And of course, if you are interested in becoming a Patreon member, uh, that that does enable us to do the kind of reporting that Jennifer does. Jennifer, you are the journalist, not me. Um, and it also allows us to pay for our producer. As you've probably noticed over the years, we do not take advertisements on this show in order to preserve our journalistic and scholarly integrity. Uh, and so any support you offer us, financial and otherwise, is deeply appreciated. Jack, that was wonderful and moving. And if you are interested in hearing what I I found in Michigan, feel free to jump over the paywall with us. Otherwise, we'll see you next time on Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider.